0: So we look to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, and we begin a new chapter as we look to the signs of the Lord's return. The signs of the Lord's return. And this is all fitting within the redemptive plan of God. Uh, But we'll look to, uh, for our scripture reading, Matthew chapter 24, and we'll look specifically at. Verses 1 to 14. We'll read those verses because those are the immediate ones with which we'll be dealing with this morning. Uh, So we'll start with verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came came up to him or came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. May God bless the reading of his word. When we look at this passage, we are looking at the culmination of human history. We're looking at the very end of human history itself, I would say of temporal human existence. In the sense that Christ is coming to fulfill everything that the Bible has promised as we look to what is contained in these verses. And so it is a testimony that's placed before us in the form of a prophecy. That is that which is the come a proclamation that points to future events and future judgments. And overall, the majority of this chapter, as we look at this chapter this morning, as we look at some of the verses in the chapter, the first couple, the majority of our chapter, beginning with verse 4, deals with the coming future judgments. So they deal with the future judgments that will come upon those who are alive in that generation during the tribulation. But first, as we look to what's in front of us, we see immediate fulfillment. And that is in the first couple of verses. When you look at verses 1 to 2 specifically, you're dealing with something that will be fulfilled in the immediate sense. And so it's important that we have a timeline because the church is supposed to be waiting for Christ. The church is supposed to have their entire invested hope in the return of Christ. And so it's important for us to not only know these things and learn these things, but to understand the end times, to understand eschatology. And so the Lord's church here, the biblical Christ church, we deal with eschatology because it's vital for your Christian hope for you to know when the Lord is coming and what manner he is coming and what he seeks to accomplish when he returns. And equally so, for those who would be antagonistic toward this, it's important for them to know that they will be under his wrath for eternity. And so they must know that whatever timeline they think they're operating on, their timeline is going to eventually give way to his second coming. And so it's vital for the Christian preacher and it's vital for the Lord's church to be focused upon the end times as the Bible explains the end times. And so we don't look at the end times on the basis of simply current events. We don't have a current event eschatology where we look at the events of the world and somehow try to relate those those events symbolically to Christ's return. The Bible is clear enough to demonstrate to us what will actually happen. And so this morning as we look to this passage, And over the next couple of weeks, as we look to this passage, Jesus is very plain about what his return will encompass and what the end of the age actually looks like when he returns. So there are specific details. But as I mentioned, not without the immediate fulfillment of what the disciples uh, uh, approached Jesus about concerning the buildings and the temple. Because that's what Matthew's gospel points out to in this particular chapter. First, it points us to the disciples looking at the temple buildings and pointing them out to Christ. And that is a significant act that they do. And when we look at the other parallel accounts in Mark and Luke's gospel, each provide more specific details. If you were to look at Mark chapter 13, verse 1, you would see uh, that this context, this account is located there. And Luke Chapter 21, verse 5, you see also this account. And in those accounts, what was taking place is stated with more detail than our gospel. And what is taking place is that the disciples were actually admiring the beauty and the magnificence in the temple stonework. So they were looking at the temples and admiring the beauty of the temples. They were marveling at the beauty, and rightfully so, because it was pleasing to the eye. But the building projects were not the glory of Christ. They were the glory of Herod. And the Jerusalem temple was known to be his crowning achievement. In fact, it is stated as much in the annals of, uh, of, of Roman history. And why is that? Why is it considered as such? Well, because it was, it's not only something that fed the Roman Empire, but it fed the mutual interests of both the Romans and the Jews. So there it stood. It stood in all of its glory, the temple, but also the other buildings, along with the other buildings. And there was a sense in which that the the benefit of having these buildings stand as they did is that they were, for tax purposes, they fed the revenue of the empire. But they also fed the religious revenue of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and uh, in the Sanhedrin Council, etc., etc., So it was beneficial for the building projects to be as they were throughout Israel. But they were also a symbol of Israel's apostasy, of Israel co-joining and co-mingling with the Gentiles who were unbelievers and not being a light to the Gentiles, but selling themselves off to join with enemies of Yahweh. And so this crowning achievement, there as it was, a revenue maker, Jerusalem is indeed a city set on a hill. So what happened in the ancient world, when it happened in Jerusalem, it was on display. And it's said as such, and this is important, it's said as such is that when one makes its ascent to it, it is, everything is visible. So one goes up to Jerusalem. Hence, that's why you have in the Bible the Psalms of Ascent. It is a pivotal city. It is is a city that even... As it stands geographically, it's a city that has a tremendous uh, play in the events of the world, but it's also a city that's visible to the eye as one approaches its region. A city set on a hill. And the people of Israel and those gathering for the feast and festivals went up to Jerusalem. They went there. And it makes you understand why Israel, in one sense, is the center of God's redemptive plan, to have his son crucified, to have his son lay down his life and be the redeemer for sinners. But one effect of its placement and where it stood was God's strategic plan for the nation. As the city set where it did, geographically above all the other cities, it would be easy to see captors take their aim at the city and strategically plan against sieges. And we see this in parts of the Old Testament. But once abandoned by God, listen to this, once abandoned by God and handed over to the nations, it would be to their shame and horror to see their enemies coming and to be able to do nothing except to become martyrs of war. So to the eye, this city set where it is, upon the pinnacle of the hills, The building stood even taller and even more magnificent. And they stood in the order of Greco-Roman architecture, the very thing that our hearts sometimes are inclined to go visit in the modern age. But I have not come this morning to give you a history lesson on Roman architecture. This passage is about judgment. It's about judgment. And those details I shared with you Demonstrate how visible that judgment is and how visible that judgment will be for all time. It is not only about what will befall the buildings, but what will befall the nation among whom the building stood. So Jesus here redirects the disciples' admiration for temporal beauty to the eternal beauty and sorrow of judgment. So verse 2, he answers them, In verse one, Jesus comes out from the temple. He was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So after viewing the magnificence and beauty of the temple, Of the Jerusalem buildings, Jesus touched their eyes to see what he saw and directed their hearts to true beauty. And I believe that that is what we need this hour, that we need to see the world as God sees it. That there's people who are trying to lobby and advocate and legislate all kinds of rescue missions for a world that is going to ultimately be judged and destroyed by God himself to give way to his kingdom but whatever greatness they saw in the structures something in someone greater than the temple was there with them because Jesus said that about himself in Matthew chapter 12 verse 6 something greater than the temple is here and so they're looking at the buildings in the temple and admiring the beauty and yet there he stood among them the disciples then were not to hold an interest in the restoration or beautification of the world's structures as they were filled with decay. For the ground upon which they were built was cursed ground. But specifically, just like the fig tree, it wasn't only about the buildings. The Lord Jesus Christ had cursed the religious establishment and its house from the roots to the branches. And you see that in the previous passage that we reviewed in our time together last week. Specifically in Matthew chapter 23 verses 37 to 39. And so Jesus, he gave them a sense in which there would be total and complete judgment. For he said in verse 2, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here." will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This verse is future from the vantage point of the context, meaning the time in which Jesus spoke to his disciples privately, this was future. However, this particular prophecy has been fulfilled from our vantage point looking back to the text. And this is because there is great precision and perfection when you're dealing with divine prophecy. In other words, a prophecy cannot have any shred of falsehood in it, or else it is a false prophecy. But this is true prophecy. Because what Christ has decreed has come to pass, and from our vantage point it has come to pass, and we know it to be so because it is recorded to us and for us in history. But what is said in this particular Uh, this particular text, Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 2, has been fulfilled in a specific event in AD 70, approximately 37 years in the future from the vantage point of our text this morning. And what happened then? Well, in AD 70, When the Roman Empire abandoned all of its superficial allegiance to Israel and turned the full force of their expertise in war against the Jews, that's what happened in AD 70. And it wasn't a fight. It was a massacre. And it was also the culmination of judgment against the generation of apostates in Israel at the time. When the Roman military overtook the city in A.D. 70, and this is the event that Jesus is referring to in this particular verse. When the Roman military overtook the city in A.D. 70, they began, in many accounts, from the upper end of the city, laying waste to the societal and religious elite, both the people and their buildings, and then the aged and the poor. According to historical accounts, they preserved Only a handful of those who would be useful for slave labor to the empire. Everyone else they murdered. They burned down their buildings and they killed them. Along the way, they laid waste to the beautiful buildings, burning, looting, and destroying. They sacked Rome completely. I'm sorry, they sacked Jerusalem completely by the power of Rome. And accounts even show that the Roman military From the tops of the temple, dug underneath the stones because they believed that there was gold and other resources within the stones. And they began to topple the stones, one stone upon another, and throw them down several feet below. They toppled the stones of these beautiful buildings, stone by stone and stone after stone. And they took whole buildings down. And if you go to Israel today, And if you go by the temple today, by what stands at the temple base, you will see a a kind of a, a marked off area of ancient stones, several big, large stones that are thrown down from the siege of Rome against Israel, piled upon one another. And all that's left is rubble. You can see that with your eye today. And that gives not only a certain credibility to what's said, that doesn't do it alone, but that demonstrates to you that when it comes to judgment, God is not playing. And so there was a waste that was laid to this place. And he already had said, Jesus had mentioned that the house would be left to them desolate. Desolate. And what we talked about in the desolation of something is not that it ceases to exist all of a sudden. But that nothing can grow there. Nothing can thrive there. So if you look at the conditions of what is known as the modern state of Israel today. That is what you see. A desolate house. And it has everything to do with unbelief. And this is what Jesus is dealing with in this prophecy. He's dealing with the unbelief of the people and the, consequent, uh, the consequence of their unbelief. Verse 3 shifts the scene to the outer reaches of Jerusalem. Because after he says that, it says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? As we look at that for the verses that will follow, you have to keep before your eyes and before your heart and before your mind the question that was asked. The disciples are interested in a particular time, and they're interested in Jesus's function in that time, known as the end of the age. That's their question. And so Jesus is answering that question for them. But again, before that question, He deals with that, the place in which they're standing, the beauty that they're admiring has to be judged and it has to be destroyed the Mount of Olives overlooks Jerusalem from the vantage point of sitting on the Mount of Olives or standing in the Mount of Olives you can actually view the city and you can view the temple base as it stands and the gates of the city and the city overall of Jerusalem and so Jesus is approached by his disciples there And again, do you know what their concern was? It's not necessarily the concern of the modern church, but their concern was the end times. Their concern was not what would the Roman government do to give them a more favorable existence in Rome. Their concern was the end times. They wanted to know what did it look like when Jesus was going to return? Therefore, they had a hope. Do you know what we call the doctrine of the end times? Eschatology. And if it is the heart of the disciples, It should be the heart of the Christian. That the Christian should be concerned with the end times. But I would say that the end times is something that is a faux pas. Or something to be discarded in the modern church. So it is determined that the end times or eschatology can be divisive. So much so... That there's a modern evangelical leader by the name of Mark Dever, who once said this, you are in sin if you lead your congregation to have a statement of faith that requires a particular millennial view. And so what they consider then is that to teach an eschatological position puts the preacher and the church in sin. And I would say to take up that that disposition means that you don't have the heart of the disciples. And you certainly don't have the heart of Christ because Christ did not rebuke them for asking the question. And their hearts were geared toward that which is the eternal Christian hope. But I'll tell you. That people assault the end times in all directions, from the world system, from the modern evangelical system, from the charismatic system, from the Islamic system. All of these things are built up to get your focus off of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. Because the teaching of eschatology, the bold proclamation of the end times, the clarity of it is out of step with the gross profits to be had on the conference circuit in the name of superficial unity. The kind of unity that makes leaders at the top of a pyramid scheme rich. But I'll tell you, away with them and away with their notions. It must be taught and it must be held dear to the heart of the Christian and Christian hope. Anyone who makes the doctrine of eschatology a so-called secondary concern or upholds the doctrinal triage to make pretend there is a hierarchy within doctrine due to scarcity of resources must this very hour repent before God. For it is a sin to de-emphasize what God has emphasized in the name of bipartisan, profitable, conference-style religion. That's the sin. So it is not a sin to with clarity point out the end times to believers. That's what the disciples were asking. They were asking Jesus for a particular millennial view. When are you coming? What does it look like at the end of the age? When is your kingdom coming to Israel? They ask him in Acts. And none of this was sin. Because even Paul the Apostle, whose labors exceeded that among his peers, Even Paul the Apostle taught the Thessalonians eschatology within the first few weeks of being with them recorded in 1 Thessalonians. And throughout the entire uh, epistle uh, regarding Thessalonians, he dealt with the repercussions of them not believing rightly concerning eschatology. So it is the affection of Christ to be armed with the heart of seeking the hope for the end times and the clarity of it, just as the disciples asked Christ the questions. Had it been a sin to form a particular view of the millennium, Christ would have cursed them for bringing the question before him. He would have cursed them, just as he cursed the Pharisees. He would have told them, woe to you for being concerned about eschatology. So what power does the modern evangelical leader have to curse you for wanting to know what the end times looks like. That's not power from God. That's power from Satan. And so that's a power that ought to be cast off. And however men would say, oh, you're misunderstanding. No, that's pretty clear. Because either you teach it particularly or you don't teach it at all. But let's not pretend to gather around something when we don't understand what it means and thus have a unity. Instead, let's proclaim what's clear. And if you can't do it, you're not able to teach. You ought to leave the pulpit. It's that plain. The times demand for preachers to stand up and talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yes, you might lose your life. It's possible. It's very likely. But guess what? This is what God demands. He commands it of his church and he commands it of your understanding of who he is. And let me tell you something. There's a couple of things that people can preach that doesn't impact every individual. We could stand here this morning and talk about marriage. Some of you aren't married. It doesn't affect you. We can talk about having a better job. Not all of you have jobs. Some of us do. Some of you are impacted in different ways at your job, but not everyone's impacted. The end times deals with every single man, woman, and child because therein you are either uh, you are either the one who will bear the fullness of God's wrath or you are one who will be saved by grace through faith and in either case and in both cases you are living out your life in eternity. And so I pose a question to you as we begin to launch into the verses before us. Why would men do this? What is their motivation to take you away from a clear understanding of the end times? Who do they work for that that would even be something that they attempt to do? and whose concern is it to take your eyes away from the end times and off Christ, the one who's coming again? Whose business is that? I think you know the answer to that. So without further ado, we ought to launch into these things, and we ought to launch into them boldness, uh, with boldness and with clarity. But it is to have that Christ-like affection To wonder about these things. To ask about these things. To study these things. Beware of men who label righteous affections as sin. Beware of them. Because it assaults their bank accounts. Beware of those men. To our text, we thank the Lord Himself for the heart that He had. And expounding before his disciples, and by extension, us as his disciples, the end times.
1: Because he heard their
0: questions and he answered them. He did not excoriate them or berate them for asking about the end times because, quite frankly, he was confused about the end times. No, he brought great clarity upon the end times because he is the focal point of the end times. He expounded on the realities of it because he is the divine reality that all must come to. And so they ask him the question, the question that we all should ask, the question that we all need answered. What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus' answer may surprise you. It may surprise you because he does not begin, so to speak, with the conditions of the world, although he certainly deals with it. But first, he deals with what I have just said moments ago. The first sign of his coming for the disciples to consider, for us to consider, and for that generation far off in the future from the vantage point of the text, as this is now related to future events, will be the increase of deceivers and the increase of deception. He said, see to it that no one deceives you. See to it that no one deceives you. In verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. The idea is very similar to deception. As the end draws near, from the vantage point of the text, the deception increases. And this is not only worldly deception, that's coming too. This is religious deception. And so that would be a sign of the coming but I must tell you that what this passage is directly referring to in its historical context is the future. It is future from both the vantage point of the text and from our vantage point because it deals specifically and directly with the events tied to that, which we read this morning in revelation six and the tribulation period that will befall that generation. Even now, Yet now, there are forms of this taking place. However, we cannot directly attribute the events of the tribulation to the present age so as to blend the two. Because when we look at this entire text, and I'll repeat it again, but when we look at this entire text, the temptation for you might be to walk by sight and think that things are so bad now that they are on scale with what's being mentioned here. But what you do have to understand is that these things are future prophecy for an age to come and that the scale of these things will be exponentially increased beyond what you're seeing this hour. So one, that ought to have you fear, uh, live in the fear in the presence of the Lord Two, it ought to have you realize that things aren't as bad as they will get, but they may get there sooner than later. And so we have to keep that before you, that this is speaking of the time during the tribulation. And as we here hold very plainly by the teaching of the scripture, a view of, the, of our placement in the tribulation, as we would call it pre-trib, pre-tribulation, that the harpazo, the rapture, the great snatching away will remove the Christians, will remove the elect from the face of the earth so that they will not be there, to experience the culmination of the tribulation judgments. And some will mock you for saying that. Some will make all kinds of hypothetical arguments that have no basis in the scripture to try to contend with you that that is not true. I would commend to you to please study that for yourself, the rapture and also the events surrounding the tribulation. But it's not a sigh of relief that you go, oh, I won't be there if I'm a believer, therefore I don't need to study it. No, your placement is still going to be within the kingdom itself, the millennial kingdom, and also the eternal state. So yet it is wise to know, just like it's wise to know the Old Testament, a time for which you weren't physically existent, it is wise to know uh, your placement in situations in which you're not physically there as well. But having said that, you have to keep that timeline before you in your heart. Because what I don't want you to do is walk away from this sermon thinking one of two things. The first thing I don't want you to think is that things are where they are in this text today. I don't want you thinking that because that can lead you to all kinds of error and exploitation and deception. Two, I don't want you thinking that because they're not so bad, you can live a life of antinomianism, which means I can keep sinning because grace will abound, or you live a life of uniformity Uniformitarianism, which says things will continue as they always have. And I need not worry that Christ will return. I'll wake up tomorrow and things will be the same as they are. We are to wait with expectation that he is going to come at any moment. But I'll tell you, there is a victory chant in society today that seeks to eliminate all things Christ and all things the church. And what we'll be studying over the course of the next few weeks together in this passage is when that happens, you are seeing God initiate the uncreation. By that, I mean He takes everything back that He created, and it will be horrific. And so, these things that are taking place, You'll see them in scale. You'll see wars and rumors of wars, but it's not the wars and rumors of wars of the future. You'll see those things, David. You'll see deception. You'll see false Christ, but you're not seeing them on the scale that is taking place in the context before us this morning. But at that time, there will be an increase of deception and deceivers who come claiming not only that they represent the interests of Jesus Christ, but that they themselves are the Messiah. They will hold themselves forward as messiahs. And so the implication for you is important. It is also why so many people tell you in your sermons not to mention implication or application or that you're going to lead people in that direction. They don't want you to understand the distinctions. They don't want you to understand the historical distinction versus how does this apply to me, preacher. They don't want you to understand that. And so we have to make it plain. Because often men teach this as though we only ought to watch for those fools who come along and say they are Jesus Christ when they are not. And so they'll do 2020 specials, television specials, on some outlandish clown who says, I am Jesus Christ. And so we know to reject him. But there's also another form of this deception where people are portraying themselves as though they are Christ, that they are both saying and doing. But what leads up to this kind of deception is the deception of our age, where people are misrepresenting Christ. And so, if you misrepresent Christ, you can get people to worship a false Messiah when he appears, or false Messiahs when they appear. So, there are going to be those who are not only claiming to speak in his name, they're going to be claiming to be him. And their deception will certainly include what they say. For they will say, I am the Christ. And I wish I could tell you there will only be one, but the text says there will be many. There will be many. Because in the tribulation you have to understand. The great deception of the hour is that the church has at this point Not only taking part in the Harpazo, the snatching away, the rapture, but that you have people pretending that the form of the church still exists. That will be a part of the deception. That they will teach that the church is still there when the church is not there. And I will argue that you get there by a false view of ideologies tied to the wrong views of eschatology. That if you tamper with the timeline, you think the church is still there when the church isn't there. You might have people after the rapture teaching, uh, teaching that the kingdom of God is still upon the earth. And so I tell you that that is a vital necessity to know these things down to the specific details, because the goal to draw people away from these things in the tribulation age is to deceive. And I don't care if we're talking about past, present, or future. You don't want anyone to be deceived. You don't want anyone to perish. They will say, I am Christ. I am the Christ, and will mislead many. They will uphold not only a false Christ, but they will do so in the power of Satan. Because these are individuals who do not belong to Him, they are actually anti Christ. And their goal is to deceive for their master, saint. They will uphold a false Christ before as they are false Christ. And this does not mean to reduce your thoughts of deception so much to the literal that you forget to understand the implications. That is to say, many will look at this and say, even if they misapply it, as long as a man is not saying, I am the Christ, surely his aim could not be to deceive. That is not true. His aim is to deceive as long as his purposes are for the cause of drawing away from Christ. And so when we look to the modern application of these events, you will look at them that way in order to help your soul. It will be evident, however, in the final days as the attempts to deceive will be more brazen because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One does not get to great apostasy and grand deception, which is known as the great lie, without believing at first little lies along the way. And so that's why the Christian in every age is fighting against deception at every turn. Because the grand deception is coming. And it is so here. Because even in the course of the disciples and apostolic preaching, they were not to lower their expectations of deception, embracing everyone who did not say, I am the Christ. They fought all manners of deception so that in the hour when the deceivers falsely claim to be the Christ at the end of the age, when they're coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, the Christian heart and mind would be prepared to guard the heart and mind and to wage war against the deception. So this first sign pairs with what we know to be true in Revelation 6. It points to what the believer of this age must do by God's power in himself as he or she prepares for what will come in the societal and cosmic signs. For that generation to come, they have to not be overtaken by the the adversary. They have to hold the same affections for the coming Messiah and to stay on on guard and to stay alert. And when we look at this, Jesus did not speak in a confusing way. He did not speak only... (coughs) In the sense of the spiritual implications, but outside of the natural occurrences in the world system. He merged the two together. He showed them that these things will take place upon the earth as they are taking place in the heavenly sense. And that he commanded us and compelled us to draw our hearts to consider what those occurrences mean in his redemptive plan. For he first says, see to it that no one misleads you because there will be a war of deception to mislead. In that age. And that doesn't mean that the tipping point for that is now. But it also doesn't mean that deception is not among us. Deception is here upon the earth. People are claiming things to be true about God and about Christ that aren't true about them. But in this age that we see, the grander scale of deception will be won as such that there will be, uh, the war will initiate carnage. The war will initiate uh, those who will uh, prove that they have never belonged to Christ, for they will be misled away from Him. And so it's important to know this hour when these things are taking place. The days ahead, the future signs that come and the verses ahead point to the person of truth. And that's what Jesus is saying about Himself. That He's making a distinction between Himself being the true Christ And the one that the false prophets and those who arise will proclaim. These signs, however, these things are to take place to propel the believers in that age into the safety of the arms of Christ. That's why they are where they are. It's so that those who are in him will be safe and find their hope in the rock. But the warning to our present generation also points us to consider what will take place from the standpoint of redemption and judgment. And so we have to understand these things because your redemption draws near, but judgment also draws near. The next verses that we will study will identify those signs and many of them will be cosmic signs. Some of them will be religious signs. Some of them will be signs in society. But as Jesus mentions the things that are before us this morning, you'll see a pattern. We'll speak to it more in our time together uh, next week. You'll see a pattern that Jesus is speaking of the seals that will be broken in Revelation chapter 6. As he goes and he deals with the signs of his return, he also repeats them later through his apostle John. To warn the church as to what will come. And so to connect ourselves back to that which is divine authority and inspired by God and authored by the divine author, the spirit of God, we have to proclaim the very same things. So the next verses will identify those signs as we prepare our hearts to consider something that affects us all. And I end with the question that we started with. As they come to him privately, They say to him, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Let's pray.